All right, guys, we welcome you for back for another episode of the Neonatal Resources Podcast. Today, we are touching on the teeny tiniest of this group. This is by far Rebecca's favorite group of babies. Woo woo! Right up there at the top with me, too. Um, they are a challenging group. They are an in- interesting group, and it's one a group where you also bond most with your parents. So we're going to dive into this. We might have to reel each other in because this is a favorite topic for each of us. Um, definitely will be more than one episode. So if we touch on a piece of something, but we don't give you the explanation that you want, hold on. It's coming. So Rebecca, yeah. get us started yeah. since this is your favorite. <laughs> so, Do you mind if I take this off? Go for it. No, go right ahead. Okay. So we talked about our moderately preterm population in our last episode. This is our very preterm, extremely preterm neonatal population. This is what makes up the bulk of the population that we talk about in neonatal intensive care as far as um, our developmental measures. The uh, gestational ages for these babies, it is very preterm is 28 weeks to 31 and six. And our extremely preterm is any baby that is under 28 weeks. Now, I feel like in the 15 years that I've been a nurse, the age of viability has slowly been dropping. Where where have you guys seen the age of viability drop? So probably 22-ish, 23 years ago, which was before I was a nurse, but experienced a NICU journey. 26 weeks was about the age of viability. So it's just kind of gradually gone down from there. Um, Now I feel like we're looking at 22 weekers and then you're really having to make some tough decisions when you're going to those 22 week deliveries of just how much is too much when you intervene. So I feel like I used to hear 27 weeks or 750 grams and I feel like it's slowly been dropping. And then, uh, when I became a nurse, I feel like the number was 450 grams. Does that sound right to you guys? I don't remember for us there being a weight limit so much as uh, when I first started, it was uh, 24 weeks and the baby has to make an effort. Okay. Now I feel like it's 22 weeks and the baby has to make an effort if you are already in the referral center. Now, I feel like the outlying hospitals tend to be a little bit different. Your 22, 23-weekers, kind of questionable. How much effort are they making? What's the risk of transporting this baby? You know, I feel like it gets a little bit, the line gets a little hazy in the outlying hospitals when you're talking about a transport for a teeny tiny baby. I think a lot of that comes down to the provider too. Like there are some providers who want to make extraordinary efforts for every baby. Mm -hmm. And then there are some providers who are much more reluctant to intervene if they don't feel like there will be a positive outcome. And interestingly, you know, the the data on these babies has definitely moved over the last 15 years. But what we're seeing is overall, these kids still tend to be about an 80% likelihood of some degree of developmental delay. And Michelle, you were saying the outlying hospitals that 
my statement that's changed a little bit. That has changed just in the years of doing charge. It was, you know, 23 weeks, we would, you know, have a team on standby and wait for that baby to be delivered and then see what happened. You're now seeing in some outlying facilities, if they know it's a 22, 23 weeker that they can't do a maternal transport before delivery, they're delivering at those outlying hospitals and then they're waiting to send a team out until after they've got that baby intubated just to make sure that, you know, this is not, I don't, for lack of better words, a waste of anyone's time. Um, not that any baby's a waste of anyone's time, but just getting a team out and all that goes there, you start weighing that possibility that you start weighing the options and the outcomes of, okay, so I have a mom in outlying facility. If I transport this baby, if I take my team there and I transport this baby, am I separating a mom that's never going to see her baby again? Or are we going all in for effort? So it ebbs and flows based on research and what people are seeing. Um, I've seen where they've tried to deliver babies at outlying facilities that can take care of these little ones to leave them there for 24 to 48 hours before they start to transport just so that they can reduce the risk of IVH. Um, But then, you know, there are also those outlying facilities where they've never seen anybody that little and they don't have Ambu bags or ET tubes small enough to intubate those babies. Yeah. So you were talking about a wasted effort. And I think I do kind of want to explain that a little bit. Um, It's really important. I think, you know, Michelle and, I know that you really appreciate end of life care with babies. I think it's really important to kind of explain it's not a wasted effort. If you're going to an outlying hospital to pick up a baby and that baby goes to the referral center and the baby passes away and mom is not stable enough to transport, it's really important to keep the baby with the parents so that this baby can pass with the parent, like be there with the parents when they pass. I think that's really important to touch down on too. And kind of, I guess, maybe moving away from age of viability. I think that alone could be its own episode. What do we see when these babies come to the NICU typically? So it's all about for these kids, the big five really. And, and I think more than any other age group for these babies, the effort is prevention. So we're talking about the alphabet soup of the little ones, right? That's IVH is intraventricular hemorrhage. A PDA is a patent ductus arteriosus. ROP is retinopathy of prematurity. BPD is bronchopulmonary dysplasia. And NEC is necrotizing enterocolitis. And what we've learned over the last 15 years is that the way we care for these babies, especially at the bedside, really impacts the likelihood of them seeing these disease processes and the presence or absence of those disease processes is a huge factor in determining their long-term outcomes. I think that was really well stated. Thanks. Yes, those, Very well stated. Yes, that, that prevention piece is huge. And that prevention piece starts in the delivery room. Yes, absolutely. It's, it starts with, you know, I can remember going to deliveries years ago when these teeny tinies were coming out and 
you know, they would have the room comfortable for mom. So if mom wanted it at 65 degrees, that room was 65 degrees. We've now seen that these babies need more thermoregulation and need a more thermoneutral environment when they're born. So if they know that a preterm baby is getting ready to be born, they'll jack that temperature up to 78 degrees in that room so that that baby's not coming out in such a cold environment to help with cold stress, which we've touched on with just about every age group that we've talked about thus far. Right. I think it was really interesting to be in a center that was part of bringing, you know, a, a very early form of the tiny baby protocols that most hospitals have in place now and seeing you know, the center that we were at, we were able to take our rate of intraventricular hemorrhage from 18% to 8 in three years because of nursing care. And then seeing babies born in hospitals outlying that don't do this, that, you know, I, I remember a primary that I had who was born at 670 grams, who was transported from an outlying facility. By the time she got to us, she was 93 degrees and she had all the things. She ended up with IVH. She ended up with NEC. She ended up with ROP. Like she had all of them. And to see the difference in that very, very strict management, like you said, Michelle, from the moment that baby comes out and and how it impacted long term, I think was a huge part of me really loving these kids because I feel like more than any other age group, this shows the best of nursing and the best of very, very diligent, mindful care from the beginning. Yes. And, you know, one of the biggest adaptations that came in the NICU actually came from the adult ICU world with the golden hour. Right. The golden hour with, you know, trauma victims as adults of getting XYZ done in that first hour. Research was done. Let's adapt this to the NICU world. So even, you know, just bringing it in from the outside, the NICU world and the adult world does cross every now and then. Oh, it sure does. It's it's funny because a lot of neonatal care is actually, when you dig through the research, there are adult adaptations that were sort of theoretically applied that then after we applied them, we were like, wait, does this actually work? Which I think is funny. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's see- fantastic. I think it's really amazing how far we've come in the world of these micro preemies. Mm-hmm. Like it's really amazing. You know, you talk about adapting the room temperature to meet the baby's needs, you know, in an L and D suite, you know, when you explain to a mom who is sweaty, hot, in the throes of labor that we need to increase the room temperature because when this baby comes out, the baby needs to be thermoregulated. They're like, where's the thermostat? Right. You know, with exception to the operating room, we can make that happen. And I think mm-hmm. that that applies across the board for a lot of these babies. Even I think back to when we very first started doing only hands on touch every six hours and you have to look at a parent and say, you know, I know you really want to touch your baby, but you can't right now. And their first thought is, wait, what? And then you explain, you know, we, we know that these babies don't auto-regulate well. So every time we touch them, we're potentially interrupting their ability to manage themselves. And the better they manage themselves, the less likely they are to develop these things. Those parents are all of a sudden like nobody touches the baby. Nobody gets close to the baby. Nobody is really loud. Like they're very 
I think for a lot of parents, it makes them feel empowered in the care of their child to be able to say, don't do that. Well, to understand the care, I think empowers parents to understand that we aren't telling you to not touch the baby because we don't want you to touch the baby. It's not time to touch the baby because the baby cannot handle that. I think that empowers parents. I put everything back on the baby. I remember the very first time I saw this, we were talking about containment with the family and they really just didn't seem to get it. And it happened that that baby had a um, an umbilical arterial line. So you can kind of see the waveform. And I said to the parent, you know, stroke the baby very gently and I want you to watch this line and these numbers. And of course, what do you see, right? You see that the blood pressure goes up. You see that the sats go down. You see that the heart rate goes up. And then I said, okay, now let's let's try it this way. Put your hands and give the baby some pressure because the uterus really is not very friendly, gentle place, right? It squishes babies. So put some firm pressure on the baby and just be really still and watch those same numbers. And all of a sudden, exactly what you would expect, right? The pressure comes down, the heart rate comes down, the sats go up. And then you can look at the parents and say, okay, so that's your baby telling you this is how they like to be touched. And parents love the idea that they can get that feedback from the baby and then do a good thing for their child in in a time where they feel very disoriented and very, like you said, like they feel disempowered. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like NICU leaves a lot of parents feeling very helpless. And I think teaching parents about retinopathy of prematurity and the interventions to prevent that and teaching about necrotizing enterocolitis and how do we prevent that. Here are the things as a parent that you can do to help your child. Right. And we as bedside nurses, I feel like can do a better job educating parents so that they're not coming in day to day feeling like they're sitting at this bedside, just staring at this tiny baby sitting inside of an incubator. Right. And I think for these parents, it's especially important because they're going to be with us for a long time. And if we make them feel early, like they have to fight for control or a role or to be able to be an active participant, I feel like that's where a lot of the dynamic of what what end up being labeled as difficult families comes from. Whereas mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, if they had been onboarded very early and given the opportunity to control the pieces that they can control, find that they tend to be the parents who end up being very accepting of whatever. You know, whatever you need to do is great. Thanks for explaining it to me. It, it changes, I think, the dynamic a lot. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit of... Sorry. Go ahead. I just say, and that's a huge piece of it. They just don't know. When you get pregnant, the last thing you think is, oh, I'm going to have a 23 weeker and we're going to go to the NICU. And this is how, and you do all your research. No, you're doing your research based on a term baby that's healthy. So for us to be able to educate them as bedside nurses, we're giving them so much more power and we're giving them so, we're letting them feel like they're parents versus bystanders. Right. Yes. That is one of my favorite, favorite compliments through the years is when a mom looks at me or a dad looks at me and says, you were the first person that made me feel like a mom or like a dad. And it's just, I I just love it. I do. I just love it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is a great compliment. 
So let's touch down on why these babies come to us in the first place. Why is a baby born at 23, 24 weeks? Because the uterus is a hostile environment sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) It's not nice. I feel like 23, 24 weeks, we see a lot of what's labeled as incompetent cervix. Yes. We see premature rupture of membranes. I'm just trying to think of some of the diagnoses that we see kind of anecdotally. Uh, I feel like early in this age group, we don't see a lot of preeclampsia. We don't see a lot of eclampsia. I feel like we see more of that at like your 27 weeks and above, 28 weeks and above. Um, so these babies aren't really, I, I don't feel like we see a lot of these babies being IUGR as yeah, a result of pre-E. True. A, a good point with that is with pre-E, you do see it a little bit later on. And most of those babies, if that mom has pre-E at 23 weeks, a lot of those babies end up being fetal demises because they have been fighting blood pressure issues very early on in a pregnancy, which you know, that mom's body just was not responding well to pregnancy. Right. Right. I think, you know, it's interesting to, to mention, like you were talking about, you've done all this research on term babies. I know people who at 20 weeks still don't accept, want to believe, haven't acknowledged the fact that they could be pregnant. Absolutely. So I think some of these babies too are, you know, I really wasn't even aware. So I wasn't paying attention. I had a mom one time who went to um, the amusement park and got on a roller coaster at 24 weeks because she, and she said I was in absolute denial, had not even processed the idea of being pregnant and went home and had GI pain. She thought and Mm -hmm. delivered the baby at home. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, that that is some of these kids too, like people who didn't know to not do the things that we would consider risky because mm-hmm. they just hadn't really. I've seen a few in this gestation where they're not fetal. Dem- I've seen fetal demises in this gestation where mom is a poly substance user. Yes. Like she, a, a lot of poly substance abuse in this age range. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of fetal demises in this age range that are due to that, but then there's some that are delivered prematurely due to abruption, placental abruption due to mm-hmm. substance Drug abuse, right? Drug mm-hmm. use, car accidents, domestic violence. Yeah, I've seen domestic violence, car accidents. Um, and I don't know if Domestic abuse in later gestations is a little bit easier to hide when you come in abrupting at 38 weeks versus 27 weeks. Is that like, I've, I've always kind of wondered. It might be it. I don't know. That's a good question. Just, um, you know, when you get, when you're getting up to 38 weeks and you've expanded your uterus and your placenta and all the things, you know, have you just expanded it too far more than your body can handle mm-hmm. and maybe say, Oh no, it's not domestic abuse. I don't know. But I, I think, think we in- question it a lot more because the earlier gestations, right? Yes. Yeah. 
Yes. For sure, I think we're a lot more suspicious. And I think in general, when you talk about these early gestations, there is nothing about this that is what we would consider normal. So something had to happen, whether it was, you know, the baby or or mom, not not that it was either's fault, but just a physiological thing that brought that on. Or was it some sort of external environmental? I think we are always looking for some sort of explanation as yeah. to why this baby is here right now. Right. I was just going to say that like a 38 week gestation baby that comes out and precipitous delivers. We may not think very much of that 38 right. weeks. That is term by all means. Now 24 weeker comes in precipitous delivers. That's a little suspect. Right. You know, right. what was going on there? Um, I do think that there are definitely, you know, we've talked with the other gestations and I think it applies here too. There are definitely things that we know predispose you. Right. So a previous preterm delivery, I feel like if you have a, you know, a mom who's maybe a G7, G8, and they've all been preterm and you, you come in and have a precipitous delivery at 25 weeks, meh. I might not be so suspicious because there's a piece of you that says, okay, well, here's the explanation I was looking for. Like mm-hmm. the most likely reason is because you've done this before. Clearly this is kind of where your body thinks that this works. Okay. Versus, mm-hmm. you know, a prima gravita who has this sort of precipitous delivery at 26, 27 weeks. Okay. I'm, I'm hugely suspicious. And right. I know Darla and I are especially bad. Like I'm going to do a deep chart dive and see, mm-hmm. can I find an explanation? And and I think that too speaks to the fact that the way that we care for these babies is so different now than it has been in the past that if I can find some sort of explanation, something that I know was a contributing factor, there are pieces of our care that we can tailor to that to help address those things to, again, prevent rather than have to treat. Well, and I think for the mom, too, when she goes to have her next baby, we can say, we try to say definitively, we think this is what happened. You know, your cervix gave way. The next time you get pregnant, you'll need a surclage at this many weeks Mm -hmm. to prevent your baby from coming this early. Right. You know, if she spontaneously abrupts at 25 weeks and her drug screen is positive for cocaine. We know to counsel a mom to say with your next pregnancy, this is really something that you don't want to do. Right. Or there's right. like, there's, you know, you have a, a, baby just born early and there's really, you're like, okay, there's no explanation. You know, there's tons of lab work that they can draw a mom to say that, okay, this is in your blood. I know like for me with my, mine, my baby that I, my fetal demise, you know, they drew blood work and they were like, okay, well you have uh, markers in your blood that put you at a high risk for a clot. So with my Mm -hmm. subsequent pregnancy, they were like, you need to start baby aspirin from the get go. And right. then we're going to monitor your levels. And then we might have to talk about Lovenox. So there's so many factors, you know, sometimes you might 
unfortunately not catch it till you've had one maybe. But if you can find that, do that deep dive and say, Hey, let's look at this with subsequent, subsequent pregnancies. And maybe you can save the mom or a family, the trauma of losing another baby or having another preterm baby. Right. Although right. I do think it's worth mentioning at this point, this is one of those times that I feel like languaging is very important because yes, you have this family who's already in a traumatic situation and, you know, the parental guilt of something being wrong with a child at any age is mm-hmm. so huge. And, you know, I've seen parents who really struggle with, why did I do this to the baby? Well, you didn't do anything most of the time. You know, sometimes it was something that you did, but you didn't know any better and you can't choose to do better if you don't know that that choice is available. And I think that the way that we approach it has a lot to do with whether a parent can receive it. Like you said, Michelle, is like, you know, this is an opportunity for the future versus this is a judgment on this situation right now. Yes, absolutely. You, you are in such a hard place, even with premature babies of a demise, you've got to word it to take some of that guilt or try to help mom alleviate some of that guilt of, I didn't do my, I didn't do what I was supposed to do, or my body's not capable of getting me to that point. Right. And I've even heard mom say, you know, I questioned whether this was even a pregnancy that I wanted. And now she came early. And did I do this to her by even entertaining Mm -hmm. that thought? No, you didn't do anything wrong. Like you had a human moment and you're completely allowed to have a human moment. Nobody's judging you for that. And certainly this isn't a punishment for that. This is something that happened. And now, you know, we need to do the best that we can from here to make sure that as we move forward, we're able to do right by these parents and also right by these kids. So I feel too, we see a lot of multiples of this gestation. Absolutely. In this group, Um, you know, the uterus expands and it says, we're ready to have these babies. Running out of room. Running out of room. Time to go. And they go. I think um, especially in the multiples, it's worth mentioning that a lot of these very early multiples, we see a lot of uh, twin-twin transfusion yes. um, where there's a situation with, um, you know, we have to take them early because one is growing so much and the other isn't growing enough. And certainly we'll get into twin-twin transfusion in an episode because I think that that's super fun all by itself. Mm-hmm. But it it is, you know important, I think, somewhere in the back of your mind when we talk about the curiosity to approach it with curiosity, because a lot of times there is some sort of underlying physiology or pathology that's part of the presentation. Yes. Yes, 100%. Um, So these babies, as you mentioned, their long-term outcomes are affected by their care immediately starting from delivery. Yes. And that is a 100% accurate statement supported by lots and lots of research. Absolutely. 
delivery room management of these babies is so important. It has delivery room management has gone from, we have a 23 acre, So we're bringing everybody to come in and observe and it's loud and it's chaotic and it's crazy and it's cold and it's all the things to at the last center where I worked, it's a 23 weeker coming this. It was discussed before that delivery. If we had the time, these are the people that are going, this is your role. We will not talk any louder than this right here because we are not going to overwhelm them with sound. The lights will be dimmer. The room will be warmer. We will get the baby out. We will do X, Y, and Z in the delivery room. We will get them in the transporter, and we will get them to the NICU in X amount of time. Don't forget, we have to wrap them in a plastic bag. Yes. Yes. With the face out. In the plastic bag with a trans warmer, which is basically a big heating gel mattress like your foot warmers that you get to go to cold ball games but it's a bigger one for the babies um you have those in there you put the leads like there's so much just you put your leads on before you go and put them in the transporter so that when you arrive in that NICU environment it's more controlled it's more um it's quieter like even I was talking about the early delivery room then we would move into the to the unit and it was everybody was at the bedside to take a look and it was loud and it was bright and it was chaotic. Now same thing happens in there. If you were not a part of the person that had a role as part of the delivery, you really weren't expected to be at that bedside and the lights were dim and it was quieter. And sometimes you could roll in to to the back of one of the nurseries with a 23 weeker and the people in the front of the nursery would never know you were there because we changed that environment so much and we worked so hard to make sure that that admission was as good as it could be for that baby to give it the best chance that we could. Okay. I just have to say for the record, I'm so proud of myself because my nerd brain just ran through all the research behind all the things that you said. And I totally reined it in. What were you saying? Thank you. I said, you're talking about keeping it quiet. Uh, I went and had a hearing test done on myself probably two years ago. And the audiologist that was doing the hearing test asked me, so do you work in a quiet environment? And I said, the environment that I work in specializes in quiet. And she said, I can tell your hearing is impressive. Wow. And I was like, very nice. So we're doing well for ourselves too. (laughs) I'm the opposite though. My first career was in bars and restaurants. So I'm completely deaf in one pitch. I think we talked about this one day that I can't hear and you hear everything. I hear everything. This has been my only work environment has been specializing in quiet. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's, we talked a little bit about the delivery. Let's, let's talk about what care for these babies actually looks like. And I think it's important, you know, we don't want to get into too much detail, but I do think it's important to make sure that we acknowledge the fact that um, just like prevention is our focus, these babies are still growing and physiologically they are different from babies outside of this range. So as we talk about care, you know, it does evolve with them. Um, you were, Michelle, talking about 
IVH and and bleeds. And we know that 97% of bleeds are going to happen in the first 72 hours. So when we talk about care, like what do you guys see as the difference initial care versus maybe seven days out versus two weeks out? So hang on a second. (coughs) So at this point, admitting these babies, you want the, the head midline. You really don't want to mess with this baby's interventricular, the interventricular pressures, the intracranial pressures. You want to keep pretty stable head of the bed elevated. I don't remember when I first became a NICU nurse really having strict policies on the positioning of babies. And now I feel like the first few days of very strict positioning, head midline, elevated head of the bed. Um, the thing that I kind of want to touch down on, and you said the bait that this gestation is unique and it really is. Their skin is underdeveloped. We put them in a humidified isolate so that we can decrease insensible water loss through the skin. When we're talking about even moderately preterm, their skin, it, it still is developed in, you know, moderately preterm skin. It's more at risk for skin integrity loss, but this particular gestation that we're talking about today, these micropremies, really we need to be careful about their skin. So you as an adult have 40 layers of a stratum cordium, roughly, that outside layer of skin, which does help like transepidermal water loss and things like that. The babies that we're talking about these, you know, especially like 24, 25, 26 weeks, they have about two Well, and the stratum cordium really isn't well developed until around 31 weeks. Right, but even poorly developed, they still only have two layers. So you put Tegaderm on, take Tegaderm off, what little you had is gone. It's coming off with the Tegaderm. Right. Right. And it really is permeable. Like, it's not an entirely permeable membrane, but you're still losing water through the skin. It's a really poor barrier for infection as well. Right. These babies mm-hmm. can lose up to 200 ml per kilo per day in just transepidermal loss, which is why and we do really... humidified isolates and humidified oxygen. And Well, and the humidified oxygen is important too, because you're talking about the amount of fluid, say it again, that is lost through the skin. 200 ml per kilo per day of, of insensible loss. Through the skin, and that's only one third of the insensible loss. The other two thirds is through respiration from the lungs. Right. Right. I, yeah, it's a lot. 200 mLs per kilo per day is crazy to even think about. And especially when you're talking about babies who, again, they don't regulate weight. They're not supposed to be here. I mean, in in a lot of ways, it's like asking a five-year-old to go work at the grocery store and run a cash register. Like they're, they're not prepared physiologically, developmentally, any of the things, right? So you, you're talking about this astronomical amount and then how do you manage electrolytes and how do you, you know, all the rest of it. Right. And these babies are really prone to jaundice. Again, another gestation that's plagued with jaundice. 
Zombies. <laughs> zombies. <laughs> we're back to the zombies. <laughs> but I just can't let it go. That's all right. I suspected that it's not ever going to be let go. No, No, I feel like it's not going to be let go. Babies are just plagued by jaundice. It's true. Um, And Mm. when you think about it, you know, these these babies, especially the ones that are delivered by C-section, C-sections are not usually very gentle procedures. Mm -hmm. And they have this tiny, tiny capillary bed and they have very poor um, autoregulation to be able to manage where that blood goes. And then they don't have any subcutaneous fat, right? They don't have that good skin integrity. So when that surgeon reaches in, that obstetrician reaches in and grabs the baby, all those risks that we talked about with jaundice, right? The bruising and all that stuff, these kids come out looking like they have just gone eight rounds with Muhammad Ali. Right. They're bruised head to toe. Well, and the capillary bed is so fragile. Right. So, I mean, really a lot of things bruise them, especially early in this micro preemie gestation. Yes. So, so we talked about the care like in the beginning versus like a week out. And I think when you talk about the risk of bleeds and and that 97% of bleeds will happen in the first three days, one of the things that we've seen from all the research that's come out about these babies is they get better at auto-regulating even day by day by day by day by day. So the way that they manage on day of life one is markedly different from day of life seven, which is search guru i have a question for you i remember early on in my in my nicu career one of the neos saying your highest risk after outside of that first three days is between day seven and ten and then again at day 30 yes um although what you find when you look at the research is you know, much like when when we talk about necrotizing enterocolitis, right? What do what did you learn? You learned day one, day three, day nine, day twelve, and day twenty one. What what you're actually seeing those risks are there are typically a bleed that develops later. You can trace to some sort of external extenuating event. Most of the research, you know, I I was not just the research nerd, but the data nerd who tracked a lot of this stuff from the last center that I was at. And what we saw was when babies were developing intraventricular hemorrhages at day seven and eight and nine, usually there was a code, there was something that happened. And those very careful, very mindful measures that we made sort of went out the window for the sake of the emergency. Does that make sense? And Mm -hmm. so you see like rapid transfusions, you see severe um, acidosis, which is corrected very quickly. And those later bleeds tend to be tied to things like that. Don't worry, I'll put it somewhere in the show notes for you, the nerdy stuff so that you can find like an actual reference. But but I promise that's that's what we see for the most part. Yeah. Well, so you're talking about bleeds. Well, so when mom comes in and she's laboring and it's a 23, 24 weeker, 
sometimes, most of the time, mom will get mag for neuroprotection of the baby, mm-hmm. like right. high doses of mag. Which, again, we talked about mag and, and sort of that interesting dynamic of it is a neuroprotectant and, and we know that. And there's been a lot of research that says that it continues to be helpful because a lot of times we hear that things are neuroprotective. So everybody gets on board and does them. And then you have a bigger body of data and you go, wait, it didn't exactly work the way that we thought it would. But mag seems to be something that has persisted. But then you have these babies who have had high doses of mag. So they come out a little slower and a little floppier and they already don't have a lot of their own drive. And, you know, especially when you talk about for a long time, viability was determined by a baby's willingness to initiate. So where does the mag impact that? Well, I think that's accounted for when you have when Mag is on board, that drive, like I said, it's accounted for. Right. And and again, I think sometimes you have providers who are very attuned to that mm-hmm. and, and who are very aware versus, you know, again, if you haven't been exposed, we've talked a lot about outlying facilities and, and it, it's like we've said, it's, it's exposure. If you don't see it all the time to know kind of 24 hours from now, it's going to look different. You might make a different call. And speaking of 24 hours. I think that's pretty across the board. I don't think I've worked at any facility where mom has been given mag and the baby's been exposed to mag for neuroprotection where the delivering providers and the resuscitating team is not aware that mag can kind of withhold the baby's drive. Makes sense. And certainly you guys would be experts in that. I I have no experience delivering babies. I get them from the door. (laughs) We we talked about mag earlier and that the mag babies a lot of times come out and they do scream and then, and then they kind of lose their, their ability to participate. That's, I was that's what I was going to say about the 24. Like, yeah, these I kids that happens, they come out initially and they do give us that first cry that we want, that we're mm-hmm. looking for. You know, it's the first cry because we hear that first cry. Okay, we're intervening, we're intubating. So they're probably not going to get more than that first cry in the first place. Right. Right. But the honeymoon is still that, real. Like, I was at a delivery this last week and you know, the baby had Matt, you know, had Mag on board and she came out and I mean, good tone, crying. And I was just waiting for it and waiting for it. And the baby's up on the mom's abdomen and the OR table and they're delaying the cord clamping. And I'm like, okay, we're at 45 seconds. And she just realized she has Mag on board. Yeah. She's done. <laughs> and your five-minute APGAR is lower than your one-minute APGAR. <laughs> well, that's how it happens, but not in right. this case. Not in that case, but, yeah. but that's how it happens. But yeah, what about the honeymoon for these kids? Because the honeymoon, I feel like, is so real. So real. Oh, Yeah, they're like good for 24 hours, and then they're so naughty. 
Yes. You get those parents in in that first 24 hours and you've got them weaned down to 25, 30%. They look so good and comfortable. Their heart rate's good. Their blood pressure's good. And then the 24 hour mark hits and you're up on your O's. Your blood pressure's tanking. And these parents are like, what happened? We don't understand. You're like, it's midnight. Cinderella's done. Yeah. Yeah. Honeymoon is over. Honeymoon's over. Your carriage is now a pumpkin. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. More ways than one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And your child is now a zombie. (laughs) With jaundice. With jaundice. Not an actual zombie. The jaundice plague. The jaundice plague. JPZ, jaundice plagued zombies. Oh my God, if that becomes a thing because of you, just now. No, it won't. Not because of me. Jaundice play. Oh my goodness. Like, (laughs) jaundice plagues, babies, and AA meetings. Oh my gosh. Oh my. Um, So while we're talking about, you know, the the research on how we do this, I also think it's important to touch on the fact that the long-term data for these kids has dramatically moved. You know, we are seeing so much, right? We, We do see developmental delays, but they tend to be much less devastating than they were when I started as a nurse. Um, we see interventions earlier that lead to milder forms of, of whatever is presenting, whether it's, um, you know, like physical impairment, whether it's developmental processing. Um, I know one of my very first primaries was born at 24 weeks and 700 grams and I saw him not too long ago and if you did not know you would not know other than that he he had some sensory issues and really was very mad when I tried to hug him very mad could also be because he's a teenager and I'm an old lady could be that I just think, you know, I think it's amazing. And I think why I love taking care of babies so much is that they just are so resilient. I cannot tell you how many times I have seen babies and have thought to myself, how is this baby going to make it? And they, and they do. Through. Yeah. And they do. And it's like an adult would have died. Babies are so cool. Like babies are so cool. Babies are like so they're cool. so cool. Like they just do amazing things. And I think Absolutely. that they just, they don't stop amazing me. And I have to say, you know, the two things I'm super passionate about are tiny babies and other nurses. And especially in this gestational age, I feel like nurses are so cool. Like to see the things that we have up with and been able to like engineer I mean how many times have you seen a nurse who completely fabricates something out of nothing because they don't make anything yes well one of the things 
if you look at the giraffe model of an incubator where the bed spins, they call it a baby Susan instead of a lazy Susan. And it was a nurse who had a baby that needed to be intubated and said, what if you could spend the whole bed? Nurses are so cool. Nurses are so cool. Babies are so so cool. Babies are so cool. I think this population of babies is really what makes me feel like babies are just so cool. Yes. And I think it's really interesting to me because I feel like this is one of those hard lines. I I usually see two that are like deep, deep hard lines in practice. Nurses either love these kids or want nothing to do with them. Don't want to be close to the bed. Don't want to talk about the baby. Don't want to look at the baby. It just, everything about it really is kind of off-putting to them, which I also love because I think it's really great when we specialize in different things, right? It's awesome to be able to say, like we talked about this in another episode, you're really good at this. Can you come do this? Or I don't love this. You do love this. And developmental care is the other one. I think nurses either think that it's the most important thing or they're like, meh, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you can be a NICU nurse and not love this population and be passionate about these. I know a lot of nurses who do not want to take care of babies less than 32 weeks. They want babies that they can interact with, that they can snuggle, that they can dress up, that they can feed. It's just their niche. And I respect that so much because if I had my preference, that would not be my preference. So cool. You take the one that's 32 weeks. I'll take the one that's 22 weeks. Great. Great division of labor. Mm-hmm. Is it weird? There is not a gestation of baby that I will not take care of. I really could walk in on any given day and just be happy with whatever's thrown at me. Well, I can take care of all of them, but I definitely, I have said for my my whole career that I feel like tiny babies have always had my heart because I, I love that these kids don't lie to me. A term kid will be like, Oh, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. And you're like, wait a minute, what happened? Whereas a tiny baby, even if they don't throw up, they, they crump, they do the, and I have no idea where it came from because you were totally faking it when you told me you were fine. Whereas a tiny baby, I do something I know in 30 seconds that that baby did like it or didn't like it. And I have a chance to correct whatever I did before the baby falls apart. I love that. I feel like I feel like I need to teach you about term babies (laughs) or 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 you could just leave me in my weird tiny baby hole. I feel like you need to learn about term babies. They're not, they're not tricky. Term baby in the NICU is tricky all day. Every day. day. They're just not that tricky. Term babies out in newborn world. Totally different. they're They're totally different. But a term baby that came to the NICU, they came to the NICU for a reason. There's something right. Right. And, and you have to, 
I mean, we've talked about this all the way through in, in other areas, but it applies to us too, right? Our experience completely dictates our perception in a lot of ways. Even if I have a theoretical sort of academic understanding of a term baby in a newborn nursery and how they're healthy and fine, my experience and my exposure is that that kid is going to do something to me that's going to make me feel like I have ruined everything. It's going to try and root on your elbow. Oh, don't lick me. <laughs> I can't take it. I can't take it. The licking sends me over. You know it does. I know. And that's what term babies do. They just root on everything. And if they're not rooting, then I feel like they're broken. I feel like if a term baby isn't eating, I have to find out why not. Okay, but maybe that's, probably maybe that's 97% why. of the term babies that I have been exposed to in my career were not eating. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are kids that were sent for rule out CCHD. They were sent for rule out sepsis. They, there's something wrong with them. They, there's something wrong. So 97% of my experience is babies that have something wrong, which means I'm going to be suspicious of a hundred percent of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's so why Rebecca likes the tinies because they can't liquor. They can't. They try. <laughs> it's still gross. <laughs> right around for the record, I need to say out loud so that people don't think that I just freak out about this. All I can think of is I am really big on developmental care and how important it is for these kids to be touched with skin. So I don't believe in wearing gloves. I rather obsessively scrub my hands and then foam before I get into bed space. So when you lick me, baby, you now have the taste of foam in your mouth until who knows when. And foam is gross. If you've ever <laughs> accidentally had it in your mouth, it's gross. And then I feel guilty because now this kid has this taste in his mouth and it doesn't go away. And it completely sends me over the edge. So babies licking me is like a point of stress forever. <laughs> Period. So I said that today to the baby. Please don't lick me. And then everyone thinks I'm being ridiculous. But, but really, it comes from a good place because all I can think of is I would be so mad if I had foam taste in my mouth indefinitely. Now that we have the research behind that. You still think it's <laughs> weird. It's okay. I, I know think I'm weird. weird. I know I'm weird. It's fine. <laughs> I think it's weird. Um, so tiny babies, I feel like what I'm hearing is that you know what to expect from tiny babies. And that is comforting to you. Uh, well, we talk a lot about um, our bucket, right? The things that you know I, I can get to and rule out. And mm-hmm. I feel like with this gestation, yes, for me, my bucket is very clearly defined. It is it is my very, like I tell people all the time, I'm an A minus personality and I work so hard for my minus that it really makes it kind of plus. These kids totally speak to that for me because I feel like my bucket is very well organized and it's all labeled and I know exactly where everything is and I can start at this and then go here and then go here and I know within five steps I'm going to be able to fix it. That reminds me of almost every NICU nurse that I have ever met. I really like to 
be able to solve a mystery. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that love of research and the deep chart dive, I think, comes back to that, right? I love to put the pieces together. I tell people Mm -hmm. I feel like the Vitruvian man is that painting that da Vinci did with the guy with the four arms and the four legs in the middle of a circle. And I feel like when I started nursing, my Vitruvian man was drawn in red crayon on like some spiral bound paper that somebody ripped out of the notebook. And every time you get a little piece of the puzzle, it starts to look a little more like da Vinci and a little less like a red crayon. Like that whole process of putting the puzzle pieces together, I think, makes it so that it hasn't stopped being fun. It hasn't stopped being cool for all these years. Mm hmm. Maybe I'm just weird in that, too. Mm -mm. No. No. No, I do. I'm going to say every baby is a mystery, and it's a mystery to be solved. Are they going to follow A, B, or C path? Right. Figure out which way they're going. Are we going to have a a non-eventful NICU admission? Or are we going to go and hit every single diagnosis known to man? Right. Or... Or a preterm baby. I mean, the oh my God moment, we actually were just talking about it, was giving liquid cocaine down an ET tube to a 24-weeker. Wait, what? 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 What does that do? Uh, Constriction. Pulmonary hemorrhage. Hardcore pulmonary hemorrhage. But it it was amazing because it was out of the blue and who'd ever thunk? I know. Yeah, I was like, we have liquid cocaine. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's green it for the record. Form? And yes, for the record, right. in case y'all don't know, Michelle pretty much had to take Jesus with her to pharmacy to get it. <laughs> oh God, it was such well, a process. Ugh. You needed Jesus and another nurse. Yes, yes. It was such. Oh, a it was a mess. It was green. Mm-hmm. It was thick and it was sticky. Oh my God! Find the biggest. Should you ever need to give it? Find the biggest filter needle in your unit. Thank me later. Truth. Wait, does it have to be filtered? I thought it no, was just... No, it's just thick and viscous and oh. extremely hard to pull out. Find this biggest needle you got. Mm. And take a nurse with you to pharmacy to pick it up. Because Michelle had to run down the stairs and then back up the stairs. And then, <laughs> and then down back the down the stairs. Yes. Yeah. Oh, what a oh, night. God. All right. Well, we'll save that story for another day so that this episode doesn't get crazy long. Um, But thank you so much for tuning in and for hanging out with us. Um, Certainly, if you guys have questions or something you want to hear about, let us know. We we love to be able to, A, give you what you need, but also it gives us a reason to go geek out and learn new things. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for everybody to go to bed uh yeah it was a really long night yes it is in a setting in zoom that i can undo next time okay undo it next time and see if that makes a difference because it's it says that it's auto suppressing background noise so i guess at some point if it decides i'm background yes i think that's what's happening okay yep okay sounds good y'all sleep sweet sleep well get some sleep Bye. Bye. Bye.